Before we get into Season 7, we want to give a shout-out to our new sponsor, which has the most on-brand product this podcast could have. iBooks sent us their Game of Thrones Enhanced Editions, all five of George R. R. Martin's incredibly addictive books upon which the HBO Hits show is based. They're the full novels, but with these cool added pop-up features such as maps, uh, character descriptions, locations, and histories, which really help you keep track of all the action. Anybody who's read the books knows that no matter how sharp of a reader you are, there are moments where you get a little bit lost, where you're like, "Uh, wait, who is that guy again? Which city is this? Where's Tyrion right now? This makes everything easier to follow so you can have a richer reading experience. These books are available exclusively on iBooks. Go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. They're not available in all countries, but they're likely available where you live. Welcome to EW's Game of Thrones weekly podcast, and if I'm talking a bit faster than usual, it's because I'm trying to keep up with the pace of events on the show this week, in which everything happened. Well, not everything, but plenty did happen. The faster pace producers have been promising really kicked into gear with a dizzying run of events in which so many things went down, uh, one right after another, sooner, I think, than we would normally expect. I actually wrote down this list of highlights that I had to write down because I'm sure I would have forgotten one if I didn't. Let's see. Uh, Let me see if I got all this right. Melisandre returned. Sam tried to heal Ser Jorah in a very gross scene. Uh, Miss Andy and Grey Worm had sex kind of maybe. Hot Pie returned, of all people. John roughed up Littlefinger. Theon's Reek self returned. Yara was captured. John set off to meet Daenerys. We got an awesome sea battle. Nymeria the wolf returned. And the other Nymeria, Nymeria the sand snake, died along with her sister, Obara. Darren, am am I forgetting anything here? Well, James, what you're forgetting, but I did see you tweet about this, it's a good thing that the ravens inside of the world of Game of Thrones, like like Westeros' telecommunications technology seems to have gotten much, much faster, even as the world has been descending into chaos. Because those ravens, they are speeding all across the continent, delivering information to people who need it. <laughs> the ravens are on their shit, definitely. You, you know, I've been, I've been geeking about this episode to you for a while now without giving you any spoilers. You know, so I'm curious, uh, because we haven't talked about this yet, you know, did I overhype it? Did it kind of live up to my excitement about it? Or what did you think? No, you, you certainly did not overhype it. To me, what I found interesting was at about the 45-minute mark, I thought to myself, okay, when James said this episode was crazy, he meant like, wow, it's crazy how many people are hanging out who don't usually hang out. I was like, yeah, like as a fan, it's cool to see so much time of Sam hanging out with Jorah, cool to see Hot Pie back with Arya. I was like, this is nice. Not very eventful, though. And then the last scene happened, and I was like, oh, yeah, I get it. That was quite eventful. The invasion of one of my favorite shows Vikings into one of my other favorite shows, Game of Thrones, was fully complete this week, and I very much appreciated that. <laughs> right, and, and you know, only Game of Thrones would have two characters named Nymeria with major plot points in the same episode. This is the same show where they were like, no, she can't be called Asha Greyjoy. That's going to be too confusing because there's a character named Osha whose name nobody knows anyway. She's just the cool wildling girl. And yeah, it's like, guys, like you had a, a wolf and a lady both named Nymeria in the same episode. People didn't care. No one was confused. Like, oh, that's weird. Is that the reincarnation of this Nymeria? No, of course not. End of rant. Uh, yeah, James, this was a very active 
informative and a kinetic episode for sure. <laughs> Jamie Lannister w- was confused. He was going to uh, Dick on Tarly going, calling him Rick on and he's being corrected. <laughs> I, and I love that. It's like even Jamie Lannister can't keep this shit straight. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Great to see uh, Sam's father again. Maybe in the end, the Tarleys will sit on the Iron Throne. Think about that for a second. Wouldn't that be a nice, <laughs> brave, freakish new era in yeah. no Westeros? Well, let's get into it here. And uh, and also, I want to apologize for my voice. I overdid it at Comic-Con, clearly. Uh, so I'm just barely able to talk. But um, let's start with Dragonstone, right? James, this episode was called Stormborn, and I loved just the synchronicity of beginning with Danny Back where she was born, another storm is raging. The weather kind of reacts to Danny the way that it reacts to the character Storm from X-Men, where like whatever she's feeling, the weather seems to almost kind of react to that. She's saying Dragonstone doesn't feel like home. Understandable is just a lot of dragons and big empty spaces there. I loved the scene that we got, which was really the meeting, probably the last meeting of Team Danny, at least as far as the greater Martell, Greyjoy, Lannister alliance goes. Big elements of strategy here, and the main idea that was gotten across was Danny could take over Westeros tomorrow by incinerating it, but she doesn't want to turn it into a slaughterhouse. She does not want to rule in the ashes. And I thought there was some interesting strategic gameplay going on here. This idea of, you know, how do we win the hearts of people? And how do we assure ourselves that this country we take over isn't going to be any more ruined than it already is? With a very cool tease forward that it seems as if maybe we're not going to ultimately see this season, the idea that a key part of her strategy was sending the Martell and Tyrell armies to one place, i.e. King's Landing, while she was going to send her various foreign hordes um, over to Casterly Rocks. I love the planning here. Tragically, it seems to have gone very awry by the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah, you're listening to this, you're going, wow, this is a great plan. I'm on board with this plan. And then it just all goes to hell, like in the next scene. The highlight during that was Danny chatting with Elena Tyrell and having that little heart-to-heart where she gives her a little bit of sage advice. You know, Elena taking the position of the lords are sheep, you're a dragon, be a dragon. Just go out there and make them fear you. You know, she's all for not listening to clever men and not holding back, which, you know, I could picture Sansa Stark seeing that on Facebook and going like, like, like. <laughs> Definitely. And, you know, we've, we've always talked a lot about how much Game of Thrones, in, in an interesting way, relates back to one of our favorite shows, Rome. And I love that they oh, yes. gave Olena Tyrell a line that seemed to really echo something that Adia of the Julii said uh, towards the end of Rome. This idea of like, look at all these like guys who've always got all these big ideas. They're all dead now and I'm still here. I, I, I like that. Also like the framing of Olena Tyrell, fair to say, has earned her cynicism. Interesting that Varys of all people came off as the man of the people in this scene. The idea that Danny is challenging him, this idea that he's been sort of like skirting between different rulers and indeed essentially selling her into slavery at, at various points of her life. But the idea that Varys is kind of like, listen, like I have always been on the side of the people. And I thought that was interesting. I mean, in, in this weird way, you could kind of argue that Varys is like the Illuminati guy of Westeros, that he's always been sort of playing behind the scenes. But I love that framing of him as like, what I want is what's best for everyone. And whatever else you are, you're definitely better than the like four alternatives that we have right now. 
now. So all good stuff there. And, you know, something that we talked about in the lead to this season, uh, we saw Melisandre. She's arrived. She is uh, back in Dragonstone. Things have changed there, but she is still there, which led to a moment that, you know, just as someone who's watched this show and read the books before, the first time that Danny ever talks about Jon Snow, she says, he sounds like quite a man. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite thing about that was Miss Sandy um, correcting the High Valerian translation of the prophecy, suggesting that, oh, maybe it's not a prince that was promised, but maybe it's a princess that was promised. And, you know, I was just thinking Stannis Brathian would be so pissed off if he died because of a grammar mistake, ultimately. (laughs) I also like that because there was just like that great moment of Tyrion saying his or her prince or princess. That's kind of less poetic to which Danny says like, yeah, but I like it better. Like, yeah, Yeah. that's okay. Like, who cares about poetic, man? It's a little more open to more possibilities as far as my gender is concerned. So yeah, yeah, uh, Yeah. I liked all that stuff. (laughs) But Melisandre clearly, I mean, she's like, well, it's Stannis. Well, it's uh, John. Well, maybe it's actually uh, Danny. I mean, there are Game of Thrones bloggers who have more firm theories about this prophecy than she does, and she's like a sorceress in this world. Very intrigued that she's so quickly aligned herself with uh, Danny, and of course, uh, everything that Danny was talking about here led right around to this impending meetup of these two key figures. You know, she sends a raven up to Winterfell, up in Winterfell, they receive a message from Tyrion, you know, just so many great callbacks to the deepest corners of Thrones history here, the fact that Tyrion Tyrion's message includes something that he told Jon Snow way back the first time they met. You know, James, how did you feel in general about, like, the kind of depth charge that Danny has set off just by arriving in Westeros? is already kind of sending these reverberations everywhere. How did you kind of feel about what it did to the dynamic up in Winterfell? It's clear that even at that farthest reach of the continent, Danny is already a disruptive force. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty clear that, you know, within the last couple episodes, uh, they've now gotten two R males. One from Cersei, one from Danny, basically saying, bend the knee to me, you know, bend the knee to me. So, you know, they're under pressure to choose sides really quickly. And, of course, interesting, that led to more John Sansa tension with Sansa going, no, you should not go. And then the audience is going, Sansa, why are you wrong again? And, and you know, <laughs> even little adorable Lyanna Mormont is going, you're stupid, Jon Snow. Don't you, you know, don't be a fool. But, you know, to all these people who don't know Danny the way we do, they would see it that way. I mean, that's fair. You know, they were running down all the different ways the Starks have like died. And, mm-hmm. you know, at this point, Pulling a Stark is probably Westeros slang for getting yourself stupid killed. For me, again, just because I'm inclined to always kind of listen to Sansa, like I think just because she clearly has learned the most from the more devious plotting strategists in the world of Westeros, while still fundamentally, I think, having the good of certainly her family and the good of her corner of the country in mind, I was kind of thinking, you know, even besides the natural skepticism about a Targaryen, a daughter of the Mad King, you know, someone who's working with Tyrion Lannister, someone who is certainly no friend to the North as far as the North knows. I was struck by this idea of, you know, here we have our second King of the North of the series. He's kind of, you know, yet again, this sort of independence of the North is a really interesting idea. This notion that, well, John, we didn't just, you know, make you King so you could bend the knee to somebody else. You're you're very aware that, like, this is something that, like, all the Lords and Bannermen of, of the North are probably like, yeah, like, we don't want, like, another situation like we had over the last 15 20 hundreds of years of sort of like bending our will to some
some monarch that we don't even know. So I thought that right. was all interesting. I will say that when John kind of announced to the assembled parliament of the North, like, Sansa, you're going to be in charge. My uh, fiance, who I was watching it with, was kind of like, couldn't you have had this conversation beforehand? Like, this, this <laughs> seems like something to sort of discuss privately before you kind of go, go out publicly. Right. But, you know, right. this gets back around. They're to very into this- putting each other on, on the spot in front of everybody <laughs> in that room, aren't they? <laughs> Yes. Yeah. They love putting each other on the spot. They always have some kind of surprise for each other. But again, to think about the different ways that these new younger rulers are ruling, the fact that in both the John meetup and the Danny meetup, there's a sense of, I am a ruler and I want to hear all these opinions. Like, Spider, you tell me if I am doing something bad for the people. Like, Bannerman, you tell me if you think what I'm doing is wrong. And I found that just an interesting framing as we're leading up to these two people meeting for the first time. Yeah, you know, and in the previously on, they had that uh, callback to Tyrion telling Danny, you're in the great game now. And I think, you know, to go back to your earlier question, what this really shows is after all these seasons of seeing either minor characters or older characters try to play this game and fail, 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 we're now at a point where our core cast, you know, the people that we care about the most are now all in the game together. Uh, playing at something that that we have seen the people do nothing but spectacularly botch so far, <laughs> and they're all trying to decide which of these you know previous people that that they should be learning lessons from, and how do they proceed? You know, and how do they marry that that challenge of morality versus pragmatism? And we don't know. You know, it's like it's like all these decisions and all these points everybody are making. You know, we're like playing along at home, right? We've all been schooled, we've all been educated, and we're sitting there like, yeah, well, Sansa makes a good point. Well, hey, Danny makes a good point, but you know, Tyrion makes a good point, and we don't know yet how those uh, fateful decisions are going to play out. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, this scene also made me think, because I, I came on so strong in our preview episode with the theory that Sansa was, was going to probably die this season. I've already amended far away from that. My new theory is that Jon is such a great kind of wartime king, someone who really didn't want to be king and is just, like, making these decisions that he knows is right, even if they're not necessarily politically popular. And I, I'm reminded of, there's that great Roman general, whose name I always forget because I'm horrible with remembering ancient history, who, like, took over. Rome when it was in need and then just like retired from being in charge of Rome afterwards and sort of like went back to tend his garden and you get that vibe from John like it's like I don't see you doing this long term perhaps wisely you're recognizing that maybe your sister is someone who is a little better at playing that part of the game but you also know what's right and that great Roman general was of course Maximus as played by Russell Crowe in the movie Gladiator That's right. Thank you. All he wanted was to get back to his farm, Darren. It's so sad every time. It just gets me. But um, let's uh, swing over to uh, another Stark, Arya, and her adventure this week. We got a totally unexpected reunion. I don't think anyone saw this one coming with Hot Pie popping up. He's really the the luckiest guy in the whole show. Everybody else is scheming and plotting and killing and and going into battle. And he's just sitting there. Yeah, I'm just going to make some pies, man. (laughs) And that's that's what he does well. And that's all he does. And it was this nice scene uh, with Arya where... 
really, of course, it's not about hot pie. It's about how Arya has changed. And we see that in her interaction with him. And he's like kind of marveling at this new hardened, you know, tougher version of Arya. And he also got to act, you know, play a role as like a Game of Thrones recapper. It's like, here's what happened in season three. Here's what happened in season four. You know, sort of filling her in and all the stuff she's missed. She's like, wow, you know, this sounds interesting. I would have loved if that sequence had gone on longer. And he was like, yeah. And then also there were these ladies down in the south, uh, you know, sort of interesting, but n- not quite clear what that was all about in the end. And I'm, I'm honestly, I, I'm honestly not sure who's in charge there now. But uh, oh yeah, and also there's like you know some some like dragon queen is hanging out over here. But more importantly, your bro is now in charge of Winterfell. And you know, w- one of the things I loved about this scene, you know, to think about being able to draw on even the most you know seemingly minor characters and kind of bring them back this late this late in the literal end game was interesting. I also liked how, in a way, both of the Arya scenes in this episode were sort of about her meeting up with a person or a direwolf who she hasn't seen in a long time. And perhaps, like, if not her becoming aware, then certainly us realizing just how much she has changed. Her kind of interaction with Hot Pie, that was the first moment that I was very aware of, like, oh yeah, Arya, like, you're somebody who's, like, killed people now. And, and with justification, perhaps, certainly within this world's notion of justice, but, like, you are no longer the person who was sort of, like, hanging out on this sort of, you know, somewhat playful adventure through the sort of back roads of West you're now like an assassin and you've seen a lot of the world and right. the idea that hot pie although he's gotten older he's the same hot pie and it's likely just sort of you know he kind of steps right back into that conversation you know i thought that was moving and also made me worry about aria you know not not worry about her just like in the sense of like you know can she go home again seemed to be the sort of subtext of a lot of her in this episode right yeah and now of course she she's headed there and about that uh direwolf scene i i really thought that that scene was just really well handled and it was very touching and it did what it needed to do and again it made the point about Arya you know these are you know it, it was a mirror held up to her um, as uh, the writer of this episode Brian Cogman you know told us uh, you know they've both had their adventures there's another show out there about Nymeria the wolf that, that where Nymeria has gone and had all sorts of adventures on her own and now they come back together and at this point, they're both lone wolves. Uh, Nymeria can't be Arya's pet at this point. It just wouldn't work. You know, they're, they're both leaders in, the, in their own right. And so they have to go their separate ways. And there's my favorite line in the episode when Arya goes, that's not you. Because she's right. It's not. And yet it is. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting reading Brian Cogman's interpretation of this, which he kind of like, you know, told you. What's great about that scene, I think, is like any, you know, truly transcendent sequence, I feel like there's a lot of ways to read it. Initially, I actually kind of thought what was interesting was that, you know, Nymeria seemed to be traveling with a pack, you know, if if not being in charge of it. And the fact that she sort of arrived with these other wolves, and Arya now is certainly a lone wolf. You know, you could say, is this an indication Arya is sort of returning to her family? So there is that sense of that. I almost kind of wondered if Nymeria sort of like looking at Arya if there's some notion of like has Arya changed just so much I mean like she's mm. gone off and 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 seen the world and become a, a faceless person and there's just a lot of 
an interesting and really sad, but I think also very true feeling there. And, and in this way, you're kind of like, the two of you could not hang out the way you used to because you were like cublings, essentially, the last time you saw each other. Nymeria, you were like a cute little wolf puppy. And Arya, you were much younger and had seen so much less of the horrors of the world. And just again, like a real gut punch, I thought. And, you know, full props to Maisie Williams for acting opposite like a wolf. And, and probably for that matter, <laughs> a like green screen wolf for at least part of it. I mean, just, you know, that's a lot to kind of fit into a scene that's just her and a fire and the wilderness. Um, so, and again, made me worry about her. There is that old line, when you're on a mission of vengeance, dig two graves, one for yourself. Is she returning to her family? What's that return going to be like? And will they kind of recognize her? And will she be able to sort of return in any meaningful way to the life she had before? Answer is probably no. So it's just a matter of how right. much more depressing can it get? <laughs> uh, well, speaking of depressing, let's swing up to the Citadel uh, briefly, at least, to touch on Sam and his Whoa. weekly disgusting odyssey into some new you know, <laughs> gross adventure um, at, at, you know, in Old Town. Sir Jorah, uh, not as bad off as maybe we had feared, but still really bad off. The Archmaester, who's, who's really the, the most useless person, like the <laughs> character in this show. He's so smart. He knows all these explanations and all this history. And his, his solution is, yeah, give him a sword. Let him go kill himself and rid us of him. So I, I'm very aware that I tried not to be a like pedantic person who loves the books, but I'm very aware that there is that within me. And I'm sure there's people who are even more kind of feeling that way as the show moves past the books. And I, I'm very struck by somehow Jim Broadbent almost seems to be playing like some extreme version of that kind of a fan who's like, well, like, you know, I've read all the literature and all this stuff and this wouldn't work and that wouldn't work. And on some level, like Sam is kind of like, okay, yes, it's dangerous. Yes, it's crazy. But we have to do this particular kind of operation. I will say the idea that to cure grayscale, you just pull off all the grayscale skin is something that <laughs> it, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily this like this crazy Gordian knot to unwrap. Um, <laughs> well, there is an ointment that's applied that's like, you know, some sort of potion. So to be fair, there's a little right, more right. to it than, than just, oh, you just cut the grayscale off their back. Um, but I mean, like, but, oh my God, what a scene. Like, that was yeah. incredible. And that well, was I, the grossest thing I have seen I, in a really long time. <laughs> I feel like, um, where's the milk of the poppy? You know, they're at the Citadel. They have access to all this stuff. They don't ha- have a little heroin juice for poor Sir Jorah. <laughs> Oh, my God. I mean, poor Sir Jorah. Could he suffer anymore? The answer is yes. Um, full credit to uh, the director of this episode was, I believe, Mark Mylod. And there was an incredible cut from this scene. It was right up there with the stuff that directors would do, like, back in olden times. Very suggestive where you sort of saw Sam going back in to cut into the skin and a cut right to someone like putting their spoon into food uh, in, right. in the scene between Arya and Hopaya. That was like the most hilarious and most gross, like just perfect, perfect uh, cutting of uh, one scene to another that I've seen in a yeah. while. James, as, as awful as the scene was, it seems positive things occurring here between Sam right. and Jorah. And, you know, thinking again about how this responds back to earlier seasons, the fact that Sam is kind of doing this because Jorah is the son of his former of his former commander. Just again, great that the show is not losing track of the kind of really particular ways that these characters have interacted, even if this is their uh, first actual on-screen physical meeting. 
Yeah, and, and and you just know that the Archmaster is going to be like annoyed. He's like the <laughs> professor that you have at college that if you're doing some business class and it gives your idea a poor grade and that goes on to make makes millions and he's like, well, it was still a bad idea. I still gave you the right grade. You know, he's, <laughs> he's, 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 he's kind of like that, like the sort of intellectual who has his head so far up his own ass that he can't see anything practical. Smash cut to James Hibbard's college experience. Someday I want to do a weekly online radio show about yeah. my favorite TV show, Professor B minus. That'll never yeah. work. That'll yeah. never work. Well, I mean, yeah, I actually got in trouble and got an F on a paper that I wrote on censorship when I was in high school because I did not censor any of the quotes in the paper. And what? I was like, that's, yeah, exactly. And so I felt very wronged. That is incredible, and now you have to publish that paper so we can all read it. Man, R-rated. You were already serving up TVMA content, even when you were a young lad. (laughs) You're listening to Game of Thrones Weekly. Game of Thrones Weekly. It's so incredible to get to read A Song of Ice and Fire, the books that inspired Game of Thrones, but trying to keep track of all the characters and locations is very difficult. Guess what? iBooks has you covered. There's now an exclusive version of George R. R. Martin's original Game of Thrones books called the Enhanced Editions that help you keep track of the storylines and characters. It's super fun and interactive. There are maps. There are house histories. If someone reappears for the first time in, like, two books, you can click on their name and figure out what they've been up to. These books are available exclusively exclusively on iBooks. So go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. Not available in all countries, but probably available where you live. It's a great way to keep track of all the characters, to keep track of the multiple continents of actions. A great way to dig into the George R.R. Martin books that inspired Game of Thrones. I think we should go to uh, King's Landing. Yes, over in King's Landing, Queen Cersei is hosting her own. Again, just an interesting cross-cutting in this episode with the different kind of reigning people of Westeros doing their own particular way of ruling. We've seen two very democratically inclined rulers. Now let's see what's going on with old Queen Cersei, who is ruling (laughs) entirely. I love how it's not just that she's ruling by fear of herself, although that is very much the case, and you're very aware that like all these bannermen from House Tyrell that she's called in, they don't see her on the throne, they see the gigantic crater where half of King's Landing used to be and they know like exactly. who they're dealing with. But I also love that in a really dexterous bit of politicking, she's also using some not inaccurate facts to promote her own propaganda. She's talking about how right. you've all heard of the Dragon Queen. Like she did miles and miles of crucifixions. Anybody who was a nobleman where she came from has now been totally expelled and, and, and burnt to a crisp. You should all worry about that. We're seeing a very different kind of despot here in King's Landing. But fair to say her pitch does seem to do kind of an interesting job on the assembled uh, lords who are tied into House Tyrell, which I thought was a kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, Cersei trying to convince people to be on her side is so not in her skill set. It's like Hillary Clinton campaigning at like a barbecue in, in Ohio. It's like you, you sort of know that she's not comfortable doing this and this isn't really her thing. And she's trying. And it felt like she, she was basically doing the negative campaign ad, right? It's like, yep. you, you need to vote Lannister or the Targaryen will burn you to death. It's the return of homicidal Targaryen crazy. And I thought she did a good job of painting uh, Danny in that. But yeah, it's, it's a little bit tough to sell this when, you, as you say, you have the smoking 
creator of the Septa Baylor right there and everybody going, yeah, but didn't you just do nuke your daughter-in-law and all these churchgoers just a few months back? Certainly, as far as bannermen go, uh, I think to be a bannerman for uh, the Lannister Club right now is uh, probably the the least fun clique to be involved in. But of course, what's interesting here is we see Sam's father, Randall Tarley, a great sort of little bit of scene setting with him. I mean, like, I fair to say I did not think we'd ever see anybody from the Tarley clan again outside of Sam. So good to know that kind of what we saw of those people on Sam and Gilly's visit last season is something to kind of pay attention to and really consider. And I like that one concern I've always kind of had going into this season was this idea of, you know, are we just going to have like the main cast of main character people we've seen all along from the main three families. And I like that Randall Tarley, as much of a bad soccer dad as he seems to be, he does have this sort of sense of honor about himself, a sense of honor about his place in the world. And so Jamie's pitch to him, which is a little... Interesting to see that Jamie has perhaps learned more about politicking than his sister has. His pitch is something that's tough to consider. Like, yeah, like, I want what's best, but also, you know, we've always kind of followed this family for generations upon generations. Interesting to think about the Tarleys family alignment and how that might kind of play out throughout the rest of this season. Yeah, he sort of did the carrot and stick approach. He he was just yeah. you know you know a bit of vague threat, but if you join us and we win, you'll be the uh, warden of the South. Yeah, um, we should also talk, James, about uh, the idea that there are three dragons off the coastline seems to have shook up some of the uh, lords and ladies of Westeros quite understandably. All along on the show, the sort of expectation of what the dragons would become has always been this almost like like deus ex machina, dragonus ex machina, if you will. <laughs> and I like that, you can almost get to say in a way, Cersei's kind of like a technocrat, because she has, you know, uh, Maester Quirrell, who's always kind of able to work on all kinds of weapons of mass destruction for her. Interesting that, you know, he's been working on some anti-dragon weaponry, and just, you know, that kind of bit of scene setting going down into to the sub-level, sub-basement where the dragon corpses are kept. I thought that was just so fun to kind of see that and also, like, great to get that moment of, like, here is literally the dragon corpse that Aegon the Conqueror flew across the sea. We are not going to treat this with any amount of respect. This is now our kind of research tool, which I thought was a great sort of bit of scene setting. Well, I mean, just that room, too. I've been really excited to see that room because that skull room is described in detail in George R.R. R. Martin's first Song of Ice and Fire book, um, A Game of Thrones. And it's one that they wanted to have in the first season, but they didn't have the budget to actually pull it off. So they were excited to be able to show us that room where all the dragon skulls are kept. Uh, you know, I was just thinking off what you said. You know what Danny should do? Danny should like mount up Drogon and just do like a flying tour over Westeros, do flybys over castles, shoot out some flame, and you know, do that for like a week or two and then send out her ravens. And that's like, yeah. yeah, sure, we'll join you. Yeah, God, I got it. Because there's nothing yeah. that creates a, an impression like seeing one of those back. Yeah, talk about like a campaign of hearts and minds. Like you're an average Westeros citizen. The last few years have been awful for you. If you aren't like lying dead in your house where you killed your children so they wouldn't starve, you're definitely <laughs> you're definitely not in a better place than you were five years ago. Like yeah, imagine seeing a dragon and being like, oh yeah, actually like my dad always said that the Mad King was was awful, but you know Targaryens they're a pretty good name. Great to sort of just get a sense of how all these different uh, forces are kind of beginning to both array themselves and array their allies against some of their enemies. 
But let's get into the big action scene that I'm sure you're very excited to talk about because there was so much gray joy in this. And I know that's your favorite family. And this was so much gray joy on gray joy action that (laughs) that I'm sure that you uh, have feelings. I have a lot of feelings. Let's just take this step by step. We kind of begin with Yara Greyjoy's fleet as it is setting off down towards Dorne. Again, like, perfect plan is coming together here. We're going to take the Martells, and we're going to take the Tyrells, and we're going to take the Greyjoys, everyone's favorite families. Just kidding, maybe the opposite. Um, And they're going to attack over here. That'll be great. You know, downstairs, Yara and Ilaria are kind of just hanging out, having some drinks, having some fun. They're chatting. I did like how, you know, of course, them kissing was a big moment in the trailer. Before the season started, I was fortunate enough to uh, interview a bunch of the cast, including uh, Indira Varma. But when I kind of asked her to kind of tease, like, you know, what's going on between these two characters? I think Indira Varma just said, I just think Ilaria really wants to fuck her. And like, I liked that. That was basically <laughs> it. There was no kind of greater sense of like, you know, because I kind of went like, oh, is this some kind of like longer term play? Like, are the Martells and the Greyjoys kind of planning their own little uh rebellion nope they are just two randy powerful people who wanted to get it on (laughs) never have i been more disappointed by like you know a fun thing about to happen and then not happen then suddenly like euron had to attack like come on right not yeah not as disappointed as they were i'm sure uh but yeah i mean it's like there are all these theories about that they thought oh might have been doing like the kiss of death with the poison (laughs) you you know there's all these theories about that and literally it was wasn't one frame more than what we saw in the trailer. If the trailer had shown one more frame, it'd be them getting bounced out of their seats. Um, fun fact, by the way, behind the scenes, couple things uh, that's going to be in our upcoming coverage. The kiss was improvised. Uh, originally, it was supposed to be Alaria flirting with Theon, but and then and then Yara says something like, "Oh, don't bother with him. He doesn't have the tackle or something." But then they realized that they already used that pretty much exact same construct in a, in a previous scene. And so they had to change it up on, on set. And uh, so Indira Varma and Gemma Whelan, uh, who play, plays Yara, you know, you know, got close and they sort of improvised that kiss. And what's also interesting is that because Gemma had hurt her back, she couldn't be sitting there in that moment when the whole set is like rocked by that impact. And so they had to draft a stunt person to do that in her place. And Indira was saying, this stunt person was so terrified of kissing me, you know, because she the stunt person, the stunt person's used to like falling off, being set on fire and falling off buildings and da da da. But this was like totally not her cup of tea and nothing she'd ever done before. So she was like petrified to like, you know, <laughs> have to kiss uh, That's yeah, the, 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 the gorgeous and amazing Indira Varma on camera. That's, I mean, that's so fascinating. And again, like, you know, one thing I like about this, I'm just going to get this out here because it's probably not going to happen again. One thing the show has always been so good about is this idea that, like, you know, whatever else, like, rulers are, like, you know, they're very human. They're, they're probably they're probably these kind of human things. We're now in this phase where, like, Jon Snow is very focused on his destiny. Danny's very focused on her destiny. Cersei seems to have, like, nothing in mind except destroying the whole world around her. I like that, like, briefly these two sort of, like, reigning people in their family were kind of like, yeah, like, we got stuff to do, but also let's, like, hang out. It's nighttime. We're <laughs> drunk let's have some fun fun was not to be had yeah um yeah. well really that's 
that's certainly a very Dorn like, you know, idea too. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, just before we move on, I just want to say, I love that they were setting it up so that Theon was going to be like forced to watch, you know, again, it's like, what is it about this guy that people want him to be the creepiest, you know, voyeur? We, we, we go from there. We see that like the fleet created by Euron Greyjoy, the biggest fleet Westeros has ever seen, just smashes right into them. Euron's ship in particular seems to have the same power that uh, for people who saw Pirates of the Caribbean 5, his ship works the same way as Javier Bardem's ship works, which is sort of like smashes into people and kind of unfurls. I, I'm, Nobody I'm saw s- Pirates of the Caribbean 5. <laughs> Listen, Pirates of the Caribbean 5 is by no means the worst Pirates of the Caribbean. That's all I'm going to say. Um, that's all I'm going to say. You would um, defend Pirates 5. But, uh, I am such a sucker for sea battles. We've talked about this, James. One of my favorite movies ever is Master and Commander. I love the way this played out. I just thought that, like, you know, having it happen at nighttime, it sort of brought back some memories of the sort of like flame and shadows of Blackwater, except, of course, now this is all happening out in open ocean. Continuing the sort of reboot of Euron, which we've sort of like talked so much about. I like that, you know, having just seen him and his sort of playful, almost kind of trickstery side, now he's just like a mad man like a ravenous madman and i got a big kick out of that in an episode with a lot of like people talking really like seriously and like furrowed brows and like you know making these plans it's clear that he does not operate that way like this is the moment that he lives for the moments of just sort of like jumping all the way into the fray and just hacking at people and i thought cool to kind of see that character just rampaging amidst all this strategizing I thought it was fantastic. I, I, you know, his, you know, raging mad pirate king entrance, you know, riding down that clamping jaw onto the <laughs> yeah. ship, screaming his head off. It was, I thought it was just so terrific. Um, and I, I also like that this, and this is something Thrones is really great at. They do these big action scenes and they always try to do each one differently than anyone you've seen before. The way this was shot, the way this played out. You know, it didn't feel like anything we had seen before on the show. It felt like its own unique thing. And yeah. we interviewed uh, Jessica Henwick, uh, who who plays uh, Nymeria, the Sand Snake, not the Dire Wolf. And she was telling us about how she was like, it was more intense on set than it will even seem in the show because. They have this wave machine uh, moving the boat, which tries to knock you off your feet. They have these wind machines on you. They have these hot embers uh, coming down onto the deck. They have pyrotechnics going off. They have like hundreds of stunt people just going apeshit, trying to beat each other up. And uh, Euron Greyjoy actor Pilu Aspect also told us, he said, you know, in that scene, you know, we were like breaking ribs. We were hitting each other so hard and the stunt guy would come down and go, why are you faking it? And you know, there are like 300 extras behind you and they're not freaking faking it. You need to give this everything you got and like scream at them to, to do it more harder, better. Um, and I, I, th- I thought all that energy really translate on screen and the frantic energy of the scene was a reflection in a way uh, of Euron Greyjoy, you know, his sort of mad, crazy energy in that was sort of reflected in the direction of the scene. Yeah, I mean, I was a little intrigued by this idea of, like, these two big fleets sort of running into each other and, like, the Yara Greyjoy fleet just being totally blindsided. I guess that one thing you could say is that, like, just the fact that Euron's fleet is entirely painted black, there's that kind of aspect of stealth to it. So I was I was okay with that. It still seemed kind of, like, crazy to be like, wait a second, like, this is a gigantic fleet bearing down on you, no suspicion of that before they're on you. That was 
interesting, but again, like, to get to the fight scene, I understood why that had to happen. This is Game of Thrones Weekly. The hardest thing about reading the George R. R. Martin books that inspired Game of Thrones is keeping track of all the characters and all the locations. iBooks has you covered with an exclusive version of George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones called the Enhanced Editions that help you keep track of the storylines and the characters in a fun and interactive way. George R. R. Martin himself worked on this. He has some author notes in there. There's interactive maps, house histories, just a guide to all the things you need guided towards. The books are available exclusively on iBooks, so go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. Not available in all countries, but probably available where you live. And if you're like me, and if a character pops up for the first time in 100 pages or 2,000 pages, and you need a quick refresher, it's a great way to remember what they've been up to, where they came from, who they're related to, check it out on iBooks, apple.co slash Game of Thrones for the enhanced editions of George R. R. Martin's books. James, let's talk about, you know, you kind of mentioned that you interviewed Jessica Henwick. Fair to say this was sort of, there is still one sand snake left, but we lost Obara, we lost Nymeria in this sequence. The general uh, overcorrection against what's maybe been perceived as like the one big misstep of the show, the Dorn plotline in season five, this felt like this sort of was the beginning of totally wrapping all that up. And I thought it was interesting. I mean, you know, when it comes to character deaths, specifically characters who haven't been that successful, I feel like you're either like a Terry Bauer or you're a surfer Johnny from the OC, where like Terry Bauer was not like the best character on 24 season one, but her death like really changed the show and really kind of yeah. impacted things and really impacted Jack. Conversely, surfer Johnny on the OC was just awful and his death made the show better because it was like, well, he's not here anymore. So like, you know, we can never talk about him again and that's fine. But things are already improving. And I get the sense that, like, you know, the Sand Snakes were more Surfer Johnnies. Like, I'm not so sure that, like, other characters are going to necessarily be that, like, ruined by their loss. But it was still quite, I thought, interesting just to be kind of like, okay, like, how do we make this scene really pivotal? Let's take these two people and, right. in a really horrifying fashion, like, you know, wind up executing them. And I, that, that right. shot of them both kind of dead on the prow of the ship was quite affecting, I thought. Yeah, I mean, first, I have no idea who Surfer Johnny is. Second. OC um, season yeah. three. <laughs> <laughs> Second. Yeah. Um, Jessica Henwick in our interview talked about this because I asked her, you know, the, the Sand Snakes always got this kind of reaction from fans. What was her take? And, you know, she noted, you know, it was always going to be difficult to give each of us a storyline. They had introduced three characters all at once and differentiate them into a show that had all these fan favorites. And so it's kind of hard to create a lasting impression. You, you kind of have to, as she put it, you know, shove the character down the audience's throat. And what Game of Thrones does so well is having these multifaceted characters that you really get to know. So, you know, she admitted that it, it was, it, it was, it was definitely a bit frustrating, yeah. but I do think this sequence was terrific. And, yeah. you know, you, you go back to the season where the Sand Snakes had that fight with Jamie Lannister that the internet just kind of ripped. This was a scene with the, with the Sand Snakes fighting in a convincing uh, way. I mean, they lost, but, but, but it, was, yeah. it, was, it was a very convincing fight and felt like it had a lot of, you know, you know passion and, and tactics to it. And I, and I thought it was cool that... Um, you know, the way you're on one is he basically turned their weapons against each of them in turn. And, yeah. and that was interesting too. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's interesting about this scene is that 
as we've been set up for this sort of beautiful strategy that Danny has, it's clear that, like, you know, Euron is just this quite literal boat smashing through that strategy. And you're just aware that, like, it's all gone very wrong. What I found really quite moving, too, and, you know, I, I loved um, your sort of phrasing of it as uh, Theon's reek persona coming back to the fore. Just, you yeah. know, Theon, here is a guy who... I mean, because we stuck with him through his reekification, we've just seen him <laughs> spiral down. And, you know, I, I became very aware, you know, it's not like he's ever, like, ascended. It's not like he's ever been, like, okay. It's just like, he's been in this stasis, he's there to support his sister, he's trying to do what's right. And I just right. thought it was such a gut punch to have it be in that moment of, like, you know, Euron is kind of like, you know, threatening Yara and saying, you know, come on. And, you know, you want to kind of say, well, okay, like, what could Theon have done in that moment? Probably nothing. But there's just like, and full credit to Alfie Allen, who's had to play so many variations of trauma over the last few years. I'm not sure I've ever like felt it more than just seeing him like go from being a warrior, someone who is good in combat to just like seeming to kind of like dissolve away before our eyes. I just found that to be so sad. And just, he's he's just like, you know, desperate to jump (laughs) off into the water. It was just so like, oh my God, you know, it was so deflating. Which, which, which I, I think was the purpose of that scene in, in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Euron triggering Reek was, you, you could just see it sort of take over his, his face and his, and his mannerisms. But like you said, if he would have tried to do something, there's no doubt in our minds in that moment that Euron would have simply killed him. So I do think there's an argument to be made that living to fight another day in that moment is actually what he should have done, even though emotionally it plays like betrayal and cowardice and was, you know, betrayal and cowardice, but it was also probably what he realistically should have done. Yeah. It was interesting that, you know, in an episode that featured, you know, it's for lack of a more delicate way of saying this, this was a eunuch heavy episode. And yeah. I thought it was, I thought it was interesting that, you know, we began with the spider, someone who, you know, in a lot of ways, his life was just so set on a path from a time that he was born. And the fact that his life story, Varys's, is a story of like, you know, I will triumph against the odds. And, you know, I will not let, you know, the loss of a key part of my body, I will not let the fact that I was born a certain way affect what what happens to me and there is that sense yeah like with Theon too where it's like boy here is somebody who really could have died 10 times by now in 10 different ways and as much as there's something very deflating about him jumping like that there's also like okay yes Theon like your path to redemption or at least some other path to redemption is still open now so you're right there is that aspect of like yes Theon what can you do to come back from this is a key question that I have (laughs) And before we go, we should circle back on that other eunuch, uh, Grey Worm, because Grey Worm and Sandy had a moment uh, in the show that was really sweet. I mean, it was very, it was interesting that what they did was in a show that, that often ha- has a lot of nudity. I, I feel like that, that scene really focused on emotional vulnerability in yeah. a way that we hadn't seen before and yeah. made that the big sexy thing, you know, the, you know, the idea that this guy who's so stoic and, you know, monosyllabic and, and just barely says anything and never opens up, you know, him telling her that she makes him afraid and expressing his feelings toward her was, you know, more powerful than, than actors getting naked. Yeah. And I like how, I mean, you know, um, 
those two characters, at least so far, are very different in their kind of book incarnations. And I, I just like that, you know, over the course of many seasons now, they have sort of built them up and built up this this relationship. And yeah, again, in an episode full of like big moments between big, huge key figures in the kind of Westerosi, you know, nobility and the Westerosi royalty. I, I liked the, you know, the amount of narrative real estate, for lack of a better word, that they gave to this. And I mean, yeah, like, boy, you do watch that and you're like, oh, nothing good is going to happen to these people. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> I hope good things, but I don't know. I don't think it's going to be good things. I think it's going to be the other kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They, they do have like a banner over their head saying doomed lovers. <laughs> You know, so but, but who knows? Who knows? You never know. You, you know, the show never tends to go the way you think it's going to go. And speaking of that, I mean, we have another episode next week, uh, which is going to be another big episode. This whole pace just continues through yeah. the rest of the season, and yeah. we have lots more intriguing events to come. Yeah, they they showed a a preview afterwards, and uh, you know, without without necessarily spoiling anything, uh, fair to say that people really like Euron Greyjoy. It seems like people are happy with him. People are happy with uh, with what he's been up to, and uh, I'm excited to see how that kind of plays out going forward. Meanwhile, I am kind of like, oh God, like the few remaining Martells and Greyjoys who've been taken to King's Landing. Maybe for all I know, they like I, I don't know. I'm just guessing. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen to them, but uh, it's probably not going to be. It's probably going to be closer to the experience that Jorah had this episode than anything else. <laughs> yeah, probably nothing good. Well, everybody out there, we would love to hear from you. You can tweet at us. He's at James Hibbard. I'm at Darren Franich. Be sure to check out. James has written seven or eight things that are up on the website right now. <laughs> yeah, um, I think yeah, there's, there's I, I'm, about six, I think. I might be lowballing that. Uh, check that out. And while we're at it, hey, let's talk about some trivia, huh? Now it's time for some fun trivia. So many prizes this season. We're excited to be giving them out. This week's trivia prizes, we're giving out a winter came for House Frey, Sigil Honey. Timely. And <laughs> and uh, proper wine for proper heroes T-shirt. A lot of great Frey-related uh, stuff. I guess also uh, Aria-related stuff. Those are our prizes. You can email us at gotpodcast at ew dot com. We'll be selected at random. This week's question. Uh, somewhat timely. We lost a few key figures this week, a couple key figures, uh, both members of the Martell family. They were called Sand, but we all know who, who, who their father was. Here's a question for you. Of all the high families of Westeros, your Targaryens, your Tyrells, your Martells, your Greyjoys, your Lannisters, your Starks, which has lost the most family members on-screen deaths we're talking about since the show began. Now, we are talking about people in a family. Obviously, there's always lots of confusions about like whose child is who. If we were like looking at these families from Westeros, who is their father? Who is their public father? You know, which family are they a part of according to their patronymic? And if someone happens to be a bastard, uh, we are looking at who their publicly recognized father is. We're going a little, like, patriarchal here because that's how Westeros is. But since episode one, on-screen deaths, which family has lost the most family members? Email us, gotpodcast at ew.com. Email us, too, just if you want to, like, hang, chat with us. 
Let us know what you think about the show so far. We'll definitely be digging into the mailbag later this season. While you're at it, we'd love to hear from you, hear what you think about the show. You can give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think about us and what we're doing here. And yeah, uh, we'll be back next week with more of EW's Game of Thrones Weekly. Before we go, we want to give another shout out to iBooks, which has these Game of Thrones enhanced editions. I was just checking out George R. R. Martin's book two, A Clash of Kings, and it's like you start an Arya chapter, and right at the top of the chapter, there's an interactive map of Westeros with this You Are Here style arrow showing you exactly where Arya left off. So it's like, oh, she's in Harrod Hall, uh, unfortunately for her, you know, in, in that book. So the enhanced editions are full of added features like that. They're available exclusively on iBooks. Books. So if you go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones, you can check them out. Not available in all countries, but likely available where you live.